you are horrified by some of the details of, of these passages. That is absolutely right. Just because a passage in the Bible describes something, that does not mean it is um, holding it out as an example for us to follow. And actually, as we, through the rest of the sermon, sort of look at this a bit more in its wider context, I think we'll see that we are meant to be horrified by it. Um, but there are also things we can draw from. So let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, um, we really need your help this morning with this horrific passage to, uh, to see what you are saying to us, uh, and particularly to us as the church. Lord, please would you help us yeah, with ears to hear with soft hearts. And above all, would you help us to see to see Jesus in contrast to this, to see Jesus, I guess, as the king that Israel was so lacking at this time. And would you comfort us with the gospel? For his name's sake we pray. Amen. You may have noticed uh, a little phrase, a little refrain in the passage. Everyone did as they saw fit, which in, in some other versions is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a poignant refrain that comes up again at the end of chapter 21, and it's a warning. It's a warning against spiritual and moral relativism. Because these chapters show us in gruesome, heartbreaking detail what can happen when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's a warning to a nation like ours, which is slowly abandoning its Christian heritage, its spiritual and moral foundations. We've seen consequences similar to those in Judges recently. And not just with the tragic murder of Sarah Everard. There will be people listening today who have experienced sexual abuse of the type in this passage. And if that's you, I, I want to recognise that this is probably a really hard passage to come to, a really hard sermon to listen to. And I and others have been praying for you this week that the Lord would, would help you to hear this without fresh trauma being provoked. And yet with all that said, these chapters are not primarily aimed at the world in general. In fact, non-Israelite people hardly feature at all in these five chapters of Judges. The focus is almost entirely, with one tiny mention of the Jebusites, who the Levite doesn't even go to in the end, the focus is entirely on Israel, God's own people. And so the warnings and the lessons of these chapters are for those, like us, who claim to be God's people today. Jews and Gentiles who have been brought together by Jesus into the church. Now I can't possibly say everything that could be said, maybe even that needs to be said, about all five chapters in one sermon. Please forgive me if I don't address something that um, 
has, has really touched everyone there for you this morning. Please do feel free to talk to me or Kitty, perhaps some of your home group leaders afterwards, if there is something more. For now, I want to walk us through the general gist of these chapters and try and get us to the main point so we can see what it all means for us. And to do that, if we want to understand the full significance or the full horror of Israel's actions, we need to remember what they were called to be. So in Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6, when God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, he told them he'd rescued them to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. In a fallen world where so much is corrupted by sin, Israel was meant to be like a kind of divine advertisement, a sort of living and beautiful billboard, if you like. They were meant to display God's rescuing merciful purposes to the world and the blessings of living in friendship with God under his good rule. Why was that meant to happen? So that the nations would look and see and exclaim, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 4. The Israelites were meant to draw the nations in to God so that they would come and share in his blessings with them. They were meant to be like a magnet. Now most of Judges so far has focused on outward threats to Israel fulfilling that calling. But all the way through, particularly in chapter 2, we've seen very clearly that the outward threat resulted from Israel's own internal failures. God sent the nations against them and invaded them as corrective discipline because of how Israel was going wrong. The very next generation, the start of Judges, after Joshua and his generation had conquered the promised land, did not know the Lord. They, they knew about him, but they didn't love him, they didn't fear him, they didn't obey him. And that ignorance and unbelief continued for most of the next 300 years, across the nation as a whole. There were individual, individual exceptions within. In many ways, Israel's greatest enemy was not the nations around them, but it was themselves. And I think that's also often the case for the church, which is why we really, really need to listen to these chapters. Here in Judges 17 to 21, we are given two snapshots of how Israel's unbelief and ignorance played out. In chapters 17 to 18, we particularly get spiritual anarchy. And then in chapters 19 to 21, we get moral anarchy. It's not that clear-cut, there is crossover, but that is how we'll approach it today. In chapters, well, across these chapters, as far as I can tell, we see Israel breaking all ten of God's main commandments 
except for number four on the Sabbath. And that's only because the text doesn't mention it. They could well have been breaking that too. And so if we start with Commandments 1 to 3, which represents of Israel's relationship with the Lord, we see religious anarchy. We see, um, firstly, this man who has dishonoured his mother by stealing from her. But then his mum blesses him, most inappropriately, in the Lord's name, using the Lord's name in vain to cancel the curse that she had invoked. And then mother and son break commandments one and two by making an image of Yahweh, the Lord, and setting other household gods alongside him. Now that's ironic from a man whose name Micah means who is like Yahweh. Apparently lots of gods are like him. To make matters worse, Micah appoints his own son, a non-Levite, as a priest in his own unauthorised shrine, even when the actual proper tabernacle of God is just a few miles away from them in Shiloh or Bethel. And even when he appoints the wandering Levite, he's still breaking Levitical law, because only priests descended from Aaron could actually be priests, not any of Levites. And then to cap it all, the wandering Levite, who is meant to be a father to Micah, which means he should have been the one instructing Micah in white right worship, he actually ends up more like a son. He just goes along with whatever Micah wants. And he shows his two colours in the next chapter when he abandons Micah to go and be a priest for the tribe of Dan instead, simply because the prestige is greater. He's a sort of spiritual mercenary. Basically, in every way, Micah, his mum, the Levites, and the tribe of Dan failed to honour Yahweh as his law requires. The worst is that they deeply dishonoured him by making him one among many gods. And they diminish his uniqueness, his surpassing glory, as the invisible creator by representing him with a cheap image. They didn't even use all of the 1,100 shekels of silver to make the image. Just 200. As verse 6 says, they did whatever they saw fit, as if our Creator has no right to tell us how he deserves to be worshipped, as if he were some kind of pathetic minor deity who is easily manipulated. And indeed, Micah seemed to think in verse 13 that the Levite was some kind of good luck charm whose mere presence would manipulate God to make him look favourably upon Micah. He was very, very wrong. Because in chapter 18, the men of Dan carry off Micah's idols, his ephod, his priests, and they leave him with nothing. They even threaten his life. And instead of destroying those worthless images, they continue worshipping them in their own city. No one comes out of this well. In fact, Israel as a whole is a little better in chapters 20 to 21. Their knowledge of Yahweh and his law is partial at best. Eleven tribes start a civil war against the one tribe of Benjamin without properly humbling themselves before the Lord. God is almost an afterthought because on day one of the battle, they just consult him in a minor point of order, who shall go up first? 
They don't think to ask, you know, what's the deeper sort of mess that's going on here, or what should we do about it? And it takes two days of heavy casualties before they realise that they don't have God's favour yet. And only then do they really humble themselves and seek him earnestly. And even after the battle, which has almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin, they don't seem to recognise that it is their own ignorance of the law and his law that are partly to blame for the mess. They cry out to God in 21 verse 1, Why has this happened to us? And it's telling that God does not dignify their question with an answer. So much for Israel functioning as a kingdom of priests and holy nation. They've become utterly compromised in their worship. They have fallen into religious anarchy. And therefore perhaps it's little wonder that they fall into moral anarchy. And if you see the link, when we forget who God is, when we forget how God deserves to be treated, we very quickly forget who we are, who our fellow human beings are as his image bearers. And then it doesn't take much for us to stop treating them as they deserve either. That's exactly what happened in chapter 19. It homes in on Israel's moral anarchy. The tale of another Levite, he's no better than the first one. He takes a concubine, a secondary wife of lower status who is usually there just to enlarge the family. And though this was permitted by God's law, because Israel's hearts were hard, as Jesus later says, it wasn't part of God's original pattern in Genesis 2. Marriage was meant to be between one man and one woman for life. And still less did this marriage represent the love between God and his people, Christ and the church, that marriage is meant to represent, as we see in Song of Songs in Ephesians 5. The concubine either abandons her husband or commits adultery, it's not clear which in the original Hebrew. It was more likely abandonment, and perhaps that's not surprising, given how her husband later treats her. Nevertheless, she and her father receive him back with this extraordinarily lavish display of hospitality that goes on for five days. And this in itself is a huge contrast to the hospitality of Gibeah from verse 14 onwards. Ironically, the Levite refuses to stay in a Gentile city, and yet it's the Israelite men of Gibeah who gather around the house at night, demanding to have sex with him. Such sexual acts would themselves be a gross violation of God's pattern for sex and marriage. That's obvious from Genesis 2 and Leviticus 18. Jesus himself affirms the pattern of Genesis 2. Nothing changes in the New Testament. But the old man from Ephraim and the Levite do something equally bad even though they seem oblivious to the fact. With inexcusable cowardice, the old man offers their vulnerable young women as human shields, and the Levite follows through on shoving his concubine through the door. 
she is raped, she is abused, and she lies motionless and speechless the next morning. Now this callous and cruel and horrific treatment of women is every bit as contrary to God's word as any homosexual act. Genesis 1.27 tells us that men and women are created equally in the image of God. Therefore, women are worthy of every bit as much dignity as men. And there were laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy to protect vulnerable women from sexual predators, even punishing the men responsible with death. But just as Israel no longer knew God truly, so the men of Gebeah and this Levite and the old man from Ephraim no longer knew the true dignity of men or women as his image bearers. And we see that same disregard for women in chapter 21. Because there, defenceless young women from Jabesh Gilead and from Shiloh are forcibly carried off as wives for the Benjaminites who survived the civil war. That is tantamount to rape. So the whole of Israel, in one sense, ends up as bad as the men of Gibeah. Religious anarchy has led to moral anarchy. Everyone does as they see fit. And Israel is no longer functioning in any way as a kingdom of priests or a holy nation. It is horrifying enough that things like this happen in the world in general. But the real shock of these chapters is that it was happening in Israel. That's particularly obvious in verse chapter 19, because so many of the details of the scene in Gibeah mirror exactly the scene in Sodom in Genesis 19. Israel, in part, has become as bad as Sodom, a city that receives utter destruction from God. That's the first shock. But the other shock that emerges as these chapters progress is that these events didn't happen at the end of the Judges era, after a slow downward spiral into anarchy. They happened at the beginning. In 18 verse 30, we read that the wandering Levite, or possibly this replacement, was Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, Israel's greatest leader prior to Jesus. And in 20 verse 28, we realise that Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother, Israel's first high priest, was still ministering at the tabernacle. In other words, all of Judges 17 to 21 takes place two generations from Moses, and in the very next generation after Joshua conquered the Promised Land. Now, if that raises questions for you about chronology and why the author of Judges will put that at the end, not at the beginning. Feel free to ask me afterwards. A lot of Bible writers do this. They often prefer to arrange things thematically rather than strictly chronologically. But for now, try to see the shock that in one generation, Israel fell this far from faithfulness. 
And the author of Judges wants us to learn a very important lesson from it all. He doesn't make many editorial comments, which is typical of Hebrew narrative. But four times, in 17 verse 6, in 18 verse 1, in 19 verse 1, and 21 verse 25, he says, In those days Israel had no king. So what is the reason for this religious and moral anarchy? On one level it's because Israel no longer knew the Lord, as we've already seen. But at another level, it is because they had no permanent ruler to restore order and bring them back to the Lord. The judges failed to do that, and so the author concludes they need a king. And not just any old king. I wonder if you remember how badly Gibeah and the tribe of judges have come out, uh, sorry, the tribe of Benjamin have come out of these chapters. Well, Saul, the first king of Israel, the kind of king that the people wanted, was from Gibeah in Benjamin. And then I wonder if you remember the lavish and exemplary hospitality that the concubine's father in Bethlehem shows. Well, David, Israel's second king and God's preferred candidate, was from Bethlehem. I wonder if you can see what the author is trying to do here. He was probably writing in the early days of Israel's monarchy, and he wants readers to see that a king from dodgy Gibeah is no good. Israel needs a king from Judah, just as Jacob prophesied back in Genesis 49. And more than that, they need David from Bethlehem. That is what the first readers of Judges were meant to understand. And they were meant to get behind David and his line. But we are reading 3,000 years later. And we might see some problems with that. Firstly, David himself didn't say perfectly godly, as we, most of us well know. He committed adultery and murder, which plunged his kingdom back into instability and intrigue. And then David's descendants didn't stay faithful. As time went by, more and more of them either tolerated false worship on the high places, or they actively led Judah in it and became more corrupt, it says in the time of King Manasseh, than the, the nations before them. So Israel increasingly failed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation again. Thirdly, God's people are sometimes just as bad today. On the one hand, God the Father has sent his son Jesus to redeem Israel, to redeem the nations from sin, from corruption. We have the new covenant that Jesus sealed by his blood. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten. He's, the Lord is writing his law on our hearts so that we don't live the same way as the judges anymore. Sorry, not the judges, but the people in that time. Like that sounds merciful, um, And yet, on the other hand, Church history is littered with false worship and moral failure, comparable to that in Judges 17 to 21. There are so many parallels, whether it's 
merry of the saints or political power and reputation or just a quiet and comfortable life. We have all worshipped idols alongside the living God. And Protestant, Catholic and Orthodox Christians have all been responsible for war, political skullduggery and murder. Similarly, every Christian grouping, including our own, has been guilty of treating women as mere property and second-class citizens through much of the last 2,000 years. Many Christians today reject God's beautiful design for marriage and sexuality and gender, and we constantly feel the pressure to do likewise. And particularly close to home has been the series of scandals surrounding abusive leadership in some evangelical churches. We are no better. Now Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that in the church, Jews and Gentiles together have inherited Israel's calling to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation and God's special possession. Why? Well, like Israel, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. But so often we live in the dark as much as anyone else. So what hope is there? Was the author of Judges wrong about kings? Has King Jesus failed? Hopefully you know that the answer is no. But it is hard to see that sometimes. So let me try and finish by outlining the difference that he makes. Firstly, it's worth remembering that there was always a mix of believers and unbelievers in Israel. And it's the same in the church today. Many unbelievers and false teachers are mixed up with true believers, and this is exactly what many of the New Testament epistles warn us about. So much of the corruption in church history is the fault of wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false believers, and their unbelief and their ulterior motives are exposed by their godless actions. So not all of the church's failings are the fault of believers. And yet many are. Many of us realise that the capacity for this grievous kind of sin still lurks in our hearts. The capacity to make God one of many idols. The capacity to dishonour his image bearers. The capacity to fight among ourselves. It's still there. So here's the second reason for hope. With Jesus as King, we don't have to stay like this. Sanctification, that is the, the process of Jesus writing his law upon our hearts and turning us away from sin, is a slow process, and we do mess up time and time again along the way. But it is a certain process. We are not destined to stay as we are. Paul promises that in Philippians 1 verse 6. For those who have truly believed in Jesus, God will complete the good work he has started. 
We are not destined to stay as we are. But if we want to grow more like Jesus, if we want to fulfill our calling as a light to the nations, we must submit to him as king. Israel's problem in Judges was partly that they were very happy to have God as saviour, to come in and bail them out and get them out of trouble from time to time. But they didn't want to obey him as king the rest of the time. Look how that ended. Now God has given us a king who is both fully divine and yet a man like us. Someone we can relate to perfectly. Someone who has been tempted in every way as we are. Someone who can sympathise with our struggles. And who loved us enough to suffer literal hell for us on the cross. He is the perfect saviour and he is also a truly good king. He's the kind of king we should want to submit to. But we need to know that we can't have him as saviour unless we do also accept him as king. With the right to direct and to rule our lives. So, will we submit to Jesus in our worship? Repenting of putting other gods alongside him. Remaking him in our, according to our own image and preferences. I'm not saying that I see that happening lots at MRC, but I know it is a constant temptation. Will we trust, will we submit to him in our relationships and with our sexual desires? Will we trust that his design is for our good, our flourishing? Even when it seems unappealing, even when it seems really hard in a sex obsessed world that just does what it seems fit. And will we submit to him by honouring his image bearers? From conception right through to final breath, male and female. Will we refuse to turn a blind eye to abortion, poverty, neglect of immigrants or the elderly, or indeed the abuse and degrading of women? And will we repent of such tendencies when we see them in our own hearts? Jesus is the best king. He is the gentle and lowly master whose burden is easy and light because he knows our weakness. He doesn't give us more than we can carry and he gives us his strength to carry it. So will we submit to him? And will we teach the next generation to submit to him with equal diligence? Have we seen how quickly it can be lost? Because if we don't, if we don't submit to him, we will be our own worst enemies. And the sin which has smeared so much of church history will bring hurt and disunity within our church or churches like ours. And it will bring shame on the name of Jesus. But if we submit to his loving rule, it doesn't need to be that way. Thirdly and finally, we have hope under Jesus' rule because there will be 
justice and healing for every hurt, every bit of abuse suffered by his people. In some measure, he may bring us that justice and healing in this life. There are many people in this church family whose lives are proof of that, which is amazing to see. And if this morning has touched on deep pain in your life that you haven't yet brought to Jesus, where you haven't experienced any kind of healing, I'd really encourage you to talk to someone about it. Maybe to me or to Kitty or again to your home group leaders or just to a Christian friend. Jesus can bring a measure of justice and healing in this life. But even more certain is the justice served on the cross for the sins of all who repent, and the justice that will be served at the final judgment on all who don't repent. And equally certain is the healing that will come at Jesus' return, when the whole creation is made new. And so I simply want to finish by reading from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That is our greatest hope. Come, King Jesus. Why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that the way things have been and the way things so often are now is not the way that they will stay. Lord, thank you so much that you forgive our sins when we have worshipped idols, when we have dishonoured your image bearers. Lord, thank you that you will bring healing to every hurt suffered by your people and justice too. Please bring that day soon. And Lord, please help us. Help us to submit to you in the meantime. Lord, our hearts so easily distrust you. We don't believe that you are the good king that you truly are. We so easily want to follow the world around us. And then we keep getting into more mess. Lord, please would you keep teaching us to truly know you, so that we love you as you are, so that we follow you and worship you as you deserve so that we love our neighbours as ourselves. Have mercy, we pray.
ஆமாம் ரெடி பண்ணி